My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is the singular Raj Sisodia. Raj has a biography too extensive to list all here. I think some of the most salient points for our conversation today is for you to know that he's a founding member of the conscious capitalism movement. He co-wrote a book by the same name with uh, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. He's also a prolific author who's written a number of other books, his, uh, including Firms of Endearment, Shakti Leadership, The Rule of Three. His most recent book, The Healing Organization, is the centerpiece for our conversation today. And we also start to touch into his newest book, which is yet to be published, Around the Journey of, of Awakening, and what it is for human beings to wake up to our full potential, to our capacity to impact others and to impact the planet. And I think you'll hear me say this at the, at the top of my conversation with Raj, but I really want to underline it. Uh, I experience and encounter him as someone who remarkably stands inside of a system. And in this case, the system I'm referring to is our economic system, our global economic system that is oriented primarily in most cases and in most contexts around the dollar bottom line, profit, profit, profit. He stands inside of that system and makes the case again and again and again for a new orientation, a deeper orientation, an orientation towards people and purpose and impact where profit might follow as a wonderful bonus, but is not the name of the game. So we dive in in a really beautiful way to the four pillars of what it is to be an organization that's not only doing good in the world, but is actually healing the world. And to write that book, Raj had to go on his own journey of healing. So we explore what it meant for him to heal so that he, with his amazing co-author, Michael Gelb, could communicate to others what it means for us to heal collectively in inside of the system we already have now. And what I really appreciate about that is a commitment to change from within, both as an individual, Raj modeling change from within for himself, and also what it means for us collectively to change from within, within the systems we've already, already built, to build something new inside of something old. So this is a really, a really rich, fun conversation. It flew by for me. I sense that it will for you, that there's a lot of trailheads that Raj and I touched on that we could have gone deeper into. Uh, but suffice it to say that if this conversation resonates with you, if you care at all about 
what it means to do business in a way that actually heals the world, you're in the right place. So let's get settled in. And hear what Raj has for us. All right. Raj, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you, Andy. Very happy to be with you. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. Gosh, there's a lot I could say about um, the influence and impact you've had on me and on many, many other people with your thinking and your teaching and the work that you do in the world. Uh, and, and maybe I'll just say a word about that, which was I first got to hear you speak, gosh, it must have been around eight years ago now, shortly after you published a, a fantastic book called Conscious Capitalism. And that was a moment where I experienced you then, and I even more so now experience you as someone who's sort of standing at the heart of a system that often isn't conscious, that often doesn't pay attention to uh, things like purpose and meaning and emotion and connection. And maybe that's less true now than it was then, but you somehow managed to like get, stand right in the middle of all that and actually start to help people look up we were talking before we started recording about how, like, if you're just looking at the bottom line all the time, you don't see anything. You've been, I just encounter you as someone who's helping a lot of people look up and pay attention to some deeper elements of life and reality, and then applying it in organizations and, and in contexts that traditionally don't quite know what to do with all that stuff. So it just is really remarkable to me, the ways that you've sort of, rather than be an outsider, kind of shaking your finger at what's wrong with capitalism or what's wrong with, with the economy. I just experienced you as someone who's walked right into the thick of it and, and really made a big difference for a lot of people. So I want to thank you for that first. Well, thank you. Yeah. I think that is the spirit of what, uh, what I'm trying to do. And I think what we're trying to do with the movement is connect capitalism to its higher essence. What is, we have sold this idea short, I think, you know, we have, Mm. You know, restricted it uh, in too many ways. There's so much uh, richer than what we have allowed it to be. Yeah. And maybe for folks who have yet to encounter that possibility, that that higher richness, maybe you could say a few words about, about what you understand to be the sort of highest possibility for for capitalism in this moment. Yeah. So if you think about capitalism and freedom were inextricably connected from the beginning. Adam Smith's insight was that freedom leads to prosperity. And what he meant by that was that in a society where individuals have greater liberty to figure out what they want to do with their life, uh, what they want to create, what they are passionate about, and then when they're free to trade the fruits of that work with each other, that that lifts everybody up far more uh, effectively and powerfully than if some central planning authority decides who does what and, and you know, what should be, how much of each thing should be made and what should be the price. Central planning really doesn't work and individuals making their own best informed decisions mm. about what they perceive to be in their own best interest, but what would fulfill them, that that freedom would then lead to prosperity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that idea remains very valid and very powerful, but we have to rethink what does that mean? You know, what, what kind of prosperity are we talking about? Mm. And what, are, what is the extent uh, of that freedom? And is it tapping into the full human? Yeah. Because economists came along. I mean, there were no economists when he did his work. He was a moral philosopher. 
The economists came along maybe 50, 100 years later in the 19th century, and they started to then put this into a box and into equations and into frameworks. And that's when it unduly, it kind of lost its soul and became very, mm. very kind of numbers driven, bottom line driven, profit driven, et cetera. And, and that really is not the essence of it. I mean, if you think about it in a free society, governments are not supposed to meet most of our needs. Mm. Governments kind of vacate you know, the large sectors of the economy and governments only do certain things. And free enterprises and businesses are given the opportunity to play in many arenas through which we take care of the citizens, right? We, we meet each other's needs through that. Yeah. Because that, when it works well, it's incredibly efficient and effective and innovative and all of that, right? So business is really a way for us to meet each other's needs, which is a way essentially for us to express care for each other. Human beings are wired to care, right? So we have a drive for self-interest, self-preservation to begin with, right? Being safe, staying alive, uh, but also serving our own needs at different levels. But we also have a need to care. Mm. Mm. We are wired into us, not only as mammals, but as a higher level of mammals, right? We have that need to care. So when we are forced to choose between self-interest and caring, Right. If something happens to our children, certainly we will sacrifice our self-interest to to mm. see their well-being. Right. So caring is a very, very powerful drive on par with, if not above, self-interest. And then increasingly we are discovering that we also have a drive to purpose. Right? So there's kind of a three-dimensional view of human beings rather than the one-dimensional view of purely self-interest. So when we think about that, and business is a way for us to express our caring for each other. It's a way for us to fulfill our self-interest by expressing our caring in a way, right? Mm -hmm. That allows us to meet mm -hmm. our interest. And all of that can be then framed within the context of us doing that which we are uniquely called to do, our, our, our unique purpose. Yeah. So each of us kind of has a different way that we express our way being in the world, right? That we are uniquely... A position to do so. So if you think about business in that way, it's a way that we care for each other, right? And and uh, and I can do that without a business. I can you care for your children and you can care for your parents and your neighbors. But if I start a company, I can potentially care. I can expand the scope of caring. Mm. Tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people, right? So I see business as a way to scale caring. Mm. Right? Mm. And so we think of it that way, then you start to look at it very differently. So then, so that's one model, right? The other one is to say business is a way that I can meet my self-interest, which I define as power and money, right? And the bigger the company, the more power and money I can accumulate. So I can then use employees to further my goals. I can use suppliers to further my goals. I can target, we use the word target, right? Customers. Yeah. Yeah. Do them as walking wallets, basically, and I have to figure out how can I extract. So I will then do and say whatever I feel I need to in order for them to buy from me. Right. So I end up using everybody in order to fulfill my self-interest. That way of doing business has kind of become the the default mode. I would say. Yes. Yeah. That causes suffering because that means you're going to end up using your employees not caring about their well-being, you're going to end up misleading, exploiting. You know, you're, instead of meeting the real needs of your customers, you're going to end up 
creating and feeding wants, desires, and addictions, mm. Mm. right? Rather than saying, what do they really need that will make their life better? And that's where the idea of healing comes in. So if I do it in a way that genuinely understands your real needs and makes you whole in that dimension, well, that heals you. If I fulfill a need that you have, I'm healing you in that dimension of your life. So business mm. can be a healing force or it can be a, a, an instrument in a way of, expo- of using and exploiting people's vulnerabilities and their uh, weaknesses, right, in order to fulfill my goals. So that's the mindset set shift that I would like to see, that we see business as a vehicle for service. We go into business to express our unique being and our need to care and serve others, rather than we go into business to use others to serve ourselves. Mm. Mm. That's a significant shift. Yeah. In the heart set. Yeah. The heart set, is that what you call it? Yeah, I love this. That's just a mindset shift. It's a heart set shift. Yeah. So I'm so touched by that possibility. And I appreciate you kind of anchoring us in the origins of it with Adam Smith's thinking that that Adam Smith didn't say, go go find a way to meet your self-interest as efficiently and as ruthlessly as possible. Mm. He simply said, go find... With freedom, you have the ability to 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 add value to the lives of yourself and others, and and right. we want to create that that space. Right. So it's about sensing. Go sense and respond to the needs that you see out there. Hmm. Government is not going to do that, right? So you you sense and respond. So you see, oh wow, the people that really, you know, love bread, and I love to make bread, and so I can make the best bread, right? And then somebody else makes something that I love, and so forth, right? So if you go back again to Adam Smith. You know, he wrote another book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, mm. 17 years before he wrote The Wealth of Nations. The Wealth of Nations is considered the Bible of free markets, the idea of the invisible hand of the market, allocating resources, setting prices, all of that, right? That's the magic of the market. But the foundational work before that was The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is about the human need to care. Mm. And mm. in a sense, what I say is that capitalism had a father and a mother. Mm. And they were both Adam Smith. <laughs> the mother energy was in moral sentiments. Mm-hmm. Need to care. Right? We, we associate, and it's not really gender based, it's just a kind of energy. Feminine energy, we associate with compassion, caring, empathy, inclusiveness, nurturing. Right? That energy, which is, as, which is a bigger part of what it means to be a human being. Yes. Then, of course, we have the other energy, which is achieving and striving and you know, winning and results and competition and all of that. Uh, so we've completely, as we do in life, I think too often, we we kind of take that mother energy for granted. Yes. And we kind of say that belongs in the home, right? And in the world, we just need the other energy. Mm. Therefore, we bring that masculine energy into the world. And when you have only masculine energy in the absence of feminine energy, it becomes hyper-masculine. Yeah goes into what people call toxic man. So, you know, strength, courage, focus, resilience, uh, discipline, uh, outcomes, winning, that becomes domination, you know, winning at all costs, hyper-competition, right? Yeah. Uh, Viewing your competitors as enemies, et cetera. That energy, almost like a warlike energy comes into. Yes. Everything becomes a war, right? Business becomes war. Sports becomes war. You know, war, of course, is war. Everything becomes a kind of battle. And I think that's what has happened in in the world. And in the United States, it's really 
sort of the petri dish or the microcosm or the root in a way many ways for this in the modern era mm-hmm. because democracy and capitalism both incubated from here and grew into spread into the world mm-hmm. right real democracy was here of course it excluded native americans and and the slaves mm-hmm. and excluded women and so we have to remember that women were not allowed to vote right for 150 years after this country almost 150 years so the feminine was excluded mm. from the political realm mm. and it was excluded from the business realm because we never paid attention to those ideas and women could not own property or start businesses or do any of that so we ended up with these two uh, essential pillars of uh, free modern society business and democracy both evolving with only one kind of energy mm. right hyperstilin become border on toxic masculine energy hence all the wars hence all the you know mistreatment of workers the rise of militant unions and the rise of uh, socialism marxism and eventually communism all of that arose in response to uses mm. of hyper capitalism hyper masculine mm. they they did not exist in the world before we had capitalism they were all reactions to a certain kind of capitalism right mm. that created mm. extraordinary suffering in the world mm. so again it goes all the way back to how do we rethink now you can say okay people could only think the way they could think in those years that's fine what is our excuse today <laughs> we're not living in the uh, 18th century right we have the ability to rethink at a different level and uh, we need to uh, evolve and and become whole right we need to not only bring in the feminine energy which was missing but i talk in the healing organization about the four energies yes there's the elder energy and the child energy as well yes right? there's wisdom meaning purpose transcendence and then there's joy playfulness creativity right uh, all of the uh, the innocence I'm, i'm really writing a lot about innocence nowadays we need to recapture the innocence that we mm. have Mm. and approach our life with that level of innocence mm. so we need to bring those energies in as well and the summary phrase that we are starting to use and we'll probably do a book about that in the future is called the wise fool of tough love wise <laughs> right have the elder energy we need to be foolish and playful and joyful that's where creativity and innovation come from humor laughter fun uh, then we need to be tough and we need to be loving and we need to have all of those embedded within us embodied within us and then we need to show up with the right energy as needed uh i'm so i'm so excited and touched to hear you articulate that so clearly and i'm glad you brought up the healing organization because that book really struck me as a, a clear evolution of you know and again i'm just sort of absorbing this from afar from reading and hearing so so tell me if this isn't right but i it struck me as a clear evolution of your of the initial insights of conscious capitalism which is to say if the the history i just described is is true and accurate which which for the most part it is like we have this really overdeveloped energy that's producing a lot of suffering in the world in the form of of hypermasculine organizations that are wired to win at any cost. Mm-hmm. They're sort of doing a version of what what James Carr's called like finite games. They keep winning but at the but at the greater like the loss of a collective greater good. And 
you then made a stand with your co-author, Michael Gelb, to say organizations can actually not only be a force for good and adding value, and, and, but actually they can be a force for healing. Yes. And that word is, you know, that's, that is a very, uh, to a hyper-masculine human being, the word healing can almost be, they, there can be almost an allergic reaction to that word. There's something like, I'm not broken. I don't need to be fixed. I don't, you know, and so just that, I just wonder how you, as you've stepped more deeply into your invitation for leaders and business people and founders to be healers, like what's that been like? What's the work you've been seeing happening? How have things started to shift as, as folks tune into these other three energies that they have perhaps not even been aware of because yeah. of the, the context they've evolved in? Well, you know, we're still in the early ages of that, right? I mean, as you said, it is an idea that is <clears throat> somewhat radical seeming at the outset. Um, but the fact is two things. There is hardly anybody out there, nobody that I know, who does not need to be healed. Yeah. There's nobody I know who does not have trauma yeah. in their life. Uh, life is traumatic enough. Getting born is traumatic. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then it goes you know, down from there. Uh, I watched you know, two recently, too. I have two young children, and I watched the like, first front row seat to the trauma that my wife went through and that they sure. both, my two and children, child went goes through. through right? Yeah, it's just. Um, and, you know, there are predictable traumas in early childhood. Everybody goes through, I don't, you know, I, I don't belong, I'm not enough, I'm alone, but at some point you'll have that trauma. And then, of course, there are other traumas that uh, everyone goes through as well. Uh, and and to, to ignore those and to, or to minimize them and to say, well, you know, that's nothing compared to what people in Kosovo or, you know, Middle East or, you know, the Gaza, wherever. Yeah. yeah, there's extraordinary trauma all through human history. Much of it inflicted by humans on other humans. Yeah. I would say, right, for the most part. And, and therefore, recognizing that we all are in a state of PTSD and that there's extraordinary suffering in the world even today, even though we are living in the most peaceful time in human history by any objective measure, mm. the number of people being impacted by wars and by murderers and terrorists and all of that, those numbers are down, but they're still too high, right? But, and then, but, but the predominant aspect of suffering today is much more psychic. Mm. Yes. Right, mental, yeah. physical, mental, emotional, you know, spiritual suffering. Uh, anxiety is way up. Depression is way up. Suicides, you know, twenty-five percent of young people, eighteen to twenty-four year olds, twenty-five percent of them seriously considered suicide just in the month of June last year. Right when they did the studies during this is during the pandemic, so it is heightened. Yes. But the broader trends <clears throat> are are there behind that, right? So there's something in our society that that is quite sick, where people with the most to live for don't want to, you know, the future has become a dark and scary place mm. for many people, mm. right? So there is extraordinary need for healing. I would say that we need healing at our individual level. We need to heal ourselves. We need to heal our families. We need to heal our communities. In our countries, most countries are more divided today than ever. Mm. Right? We need to heal, certainly we need to heal our planet and its ability to sustain life. Yeah. We need to heal the past. You know, unless we heal the past, we really cannot adequately heal in the present. Yeah. And there are too many people who say, well, the past is the past. So, you know, we don't talk about that anymore. Let's look yes. at it. Right? Yeah. Well, no, you cannot actually do that. Unless 
you go through what South Africa did, a truth and reconciliation process. Yeah. You say, this is what happened. This is, you know, we atone for that. We beg forgiveness for it. You know, we didn't know any better. Whatever, However, we express all of that in some level of atonement. Without that, no real healing is possible. Mm. Because all mm. you've done is sweep it on the carpet. It's going to erupt over and over again. That's the history of this country when it comes to slavery. Yes. Right? Even though we fought a civil war. Yeah, and millions, one of the bloodiest wars in human history. The fact is, within a few years, we reconstituted that system under different guise. It took another century before meaningful progress was made. Mm-hmm. And it's taken another 60 years since then, right? Before we really another level. So big, why? Because we have never fully stepped into that, right? We have never fully done the truth and reconciliation. Uh, for that, for the Native Americans, you know. Yeah. Now in our culture, there's a strain that says being America means you never have to say sorry. Yeah. Or actually saying that will get you, you know, fired or unelected, right? I mean, it's it's it's, it's like the biggest thing. America will never apologize for anything. So there's just something there to learn from, you know. What is our, our country, I think, in a way embodies hyper-masculine energy, you know, to yeah. a degree a few other places do. I mean, just look at our gun ownership, right? We are four and a half percent of the world's population. We have 55, 60% of the world's guns. Yeah. Right? So that's, uh, that says there's a, there's a loss of innocence. Mm. Yeah. We have never really uh, tried to get back to, you know, mm. that, you know, so mm. remain in the, you know, the innocence yeah. state because of that. So, uh, so, you know, that's a lot of territory, but um you know, but I do think fundamentally the idea of healing to me, and maybe it was a personal thing as well, it spoke to me powerfully. Mm-hmm. I recognized, you know, I, like everybody else, had swept many traumas under the carpet mm-hmm. um, and had minimized them and said, you know, in the scheme of things, that really is nothing. And But then I was turning 60 and I was working on writing that book and several people, all women, by the way, Four four women told me, you need to slow down. You need to work on your own healing mm. or you mm. about healing. Because I had said this book is a sacred undertaking. To write about healing is not something we take lightly. Um, and you need to take time off and work on your own healing and go with the, go inward and look at what needs to be healed. And then write from that place. I resisted. So I said, I have a book deadline. I don't have time for all that. <laughs> Fortunately, they convinced me, so I did actually delay the book by five months and and, and had many experiences wow. that really took me inward and made me look at my life in a different way and made me look at the context of my life in a different way. You know, the, the country I was born into, India, the, the specific subculture I was born into, the warrior caste, mm. within that, a particularly feudal strain called the Rajputs, right? And and what that meant and what I saw and I witnessed and experienced as a child and then of course the country of of my adopted homeland here you know and looking at that the context of what uh, you know what this country has gone through so you know it just uh, it just uh, uh, gave me access to many many insights wow my life and my journey and the times in which i've i have lived and how to make sense of that and so that's really the focus of the book i'm doing right now which is coming close to uh, close to the end Mm. I want to talk more about that. And maybe one thing I want to underline that really strikes me is that the resistance you had to slow down and heal, even as you wrote a book about healing, 
is symptomatic of the energy that keeps us stuck, yeah. you know, and I'm not, I, I, I don't hear you saying you, I don't hear you claiming like I did all the work and I'm fully healed. And it was mm-hmm. five months. It was amazing, but I am hearing you say that ultimately you simply delayed the book for five months. Yes. Right? And so there's that voice that says, I don't have time. There's a deadline. We've got more to do. Yeah. Healing is nice. Yes. It's even sacred, but I don't, I don't actually have time to do it. <laughs> we don't actually have time to do it. And I just, I just am really struck by the way in which I'm so glad that you had some allies who were able to bring in that feminine energy and say, you got to do this, Raj. Yes. And I wonder, like, I just see that, that mirrored in all of the places where we intellectually know, you know, I could see a lot of people being like, you're right, Raj, you're right. But where are we going to find the time? You know? And so I just wonder right. how you, when you encounter that energy in yeah. leaders, uh, business leaders, whoever, I'm just curious how you hold space with it and how, and what you might, what you might say to yeah. us who are living inside that paradox of if we slow down a bit, we can actually go so much deeper. Yes. Yes. So, you know, how we allocate our time is a function of what we prioritize. Right. And if we do not prioritize that, you know, our healing as a leader the fact is that the macrocosm reflects the microcosm. Mm. And if you do not work on your own healing, you will be a source of suffering, mm. uh, not only for yourself, but to others in the world. And a leader, you know, their actions impact so many people, right? Thousands, tens of thousands, you know, depending mm. on the size of the company, that they have a, a moral, ethical, spiritual duty to actually work on their own healing on a continuous basis. You know, this is a never-ending journey. This will not end for me now until the end of my life, right? And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm you know, two years removed from when all of that happened, or even three years now almost. You know, I'm still going through daily uh, things, you know, breakthroughs and healing, that uh, experiences that I'm going through. Um, but, but it's about getting started on the journey and having that intentionality, you know, behind everything that you do. So I think for leaders, there's, you know, you don't, you cannot afford not to make time for this. Mm. Uh, and the fact is that once you do uh, make time for this, like silence. I mean, I went on silent retreats, right, uh, during that. And it's extraordinary. You think you're being unproductive. <laughs> I had more insights in those, you know, four days of silence than I would have had in 40 days of work. It's just yeah. like something that channels through you when you are still, right? So I think it's all a part of understanding what does it mean to be a leader and a conscious leader and an awakened leader? You have to, you know, intentionally uh, make space and create conditions uh, for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's in part why I'm writing this book, because I want to share with leaders what it meant for me and how it evolved for me so that maybe it inspires others to, to mark on that journey as well. It's, it's a scary journey, I have to say. You know, I have been experiencing all kinds of flashbacks, uh, you know, uh, physical aches and pains, headaches, you know, all kinds of things as I have lived things in my life. But uh, I think it's an essential part of it. You know, this is what my girlfriend calls becoming a self-cleaning oven. (laughs) I love that. You go through that cycle every so often, you know, or continuously. Yeah. Yeah, and and I sense you said earlier that the importance of reckoning with the past and sort of like what happened in South Africa with the truth and reconciliation process being kind of a, 
an example of that on a national stage. But it, it also sounds like that's been a part of your own very personal journey, like connecting to your, your past in India and also the pasts you've inherited by becoming an American. And, and I wonder if you could say more about that as it relates to this, this sort of self-cleaning oven energy that your girlfriend describes. Like what's, what's happening there for you as you start to see these truths in clearer detail and don't just let them be somewhere in the vague, amorphous, foggy past that most of us live in, live with. Yeah, so I've, I've had to look at my own journey, but also my heritage, my background, my father, my grandfather, his father. You know, I come from a very patriarchal system. I mean, the whole world in many ways is patriarchal, but I come, I would say, from a hyper-patriarchal system. Mm. Mm where uh, <clears throat> the men have all the power and women have very, very little in, in my particular subcast as well. And uh, if I look at the suffering that has been handed down, if I look at the so-called father wound, you know, it runs deep. Uh, it runs deep from my grandfather to my father, from my father to me, and I would say from my, me to my son until I realized it. And now I'm in the process of healing my son's father wound to the extent that I can. Right, but there is uh, uh, there's a lot there that that happened uh, in my life, uh, in my relationship to my father, uh, and you know if you don't step back and process that and be conscious about it, then the story becomes one of victims of victims. Right, everybody is a victim uh, of you know, their upbringing and their father, and therefore they do that to their son and that they do that to their children and, and so forth, right? And the only way to break that cycle is through awareness and consciousness. Mm. And which is what I'm trying to do is to break that cycle of intergenerational uh, suffering and uh, and victimhood in a mm. way. Mm. Right? So, so I have as part of this uncovered history of my own family in much deeper ways. There were things that I saw with my own eyes but other things that happened before I was born, other things that happened when I wasn't around, right? So I'm getting a bigger picture of uh, the consequences of living and being in a certain way, right? And the amount of suffering that was created uh, through that um, was was extraordinary, right? And, and, and by the way, part of my experiences also have been informed through some plant journeys. You know, I've had some psychedelic uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. A variety, including ayahuasca, deep in the Amazon rainforest, you know, as mm. part of my uh, journeys there. And so many of these things kind of have been revealed uh, to me out of that process, right? So, so again, it's kind of like, you know, stepping back, you know, it's like a river that's flowing. But if you can step back and say, okay, I understand what's been happening in the past and where this is going, but I can now redirect that. I can mm. now that in a different way. Mm. I totally break that cycle for myself and my children and who comes beyond. Uh, but I can also, you know, by going back and, and looking at some of those things, I, how do you heal the past is, is one of the biggest questions. Right? Yeah. How do you heal the past? Well, you don't heal it without acknowledging it. Yeah. Right. And in my family, there are deep, dark secrets that everybody knows, but nobody will talk about. Mm. Right? Mm. And why? Because, well, you know, it's like about saving face and it's about our reputation and about what will other people think of us and so forth. And therefore, the ugliest realities remain buried. 
They're not, up, you know, so, uh, you know, and unless you do that, unless you bring light into the darker corner, hmm. uh, those will continue to drive us in the future, right? Those energies that are not yet healed from that. So I think a big part of that really is, you know, there are things in my book and I'm still in the process of figuring out how to say this, how to tell the story and how to, what I'm trying to err on the side of being as uh, open as possible, mm. healing as possible, uh, so that we can move past that. Mm. I mm. think that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, it's being willing to look at the whole truth. Mm. And so, you know, and part of that, what I'd like to share then is one of the big insights that I had in my ayahuasca, you know, ayahuasca, right? Yeah, yeah. That the native... Yeah, maybe not everyone listening will know, so maybe you could just say, you don't have to do any sort of discourse on that, but just a word or two in whatever way feels comfortable, and then, yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear that insight. So ayahuasca is a, uh, is a brew that has been used by the indigenous people of the Amazon basin, I think, mostly. Yes until in South America yeah. for thousands, if not more, you know, yeah. years. It's a combination of, of, the, of, of some leaves and some wine and they boil them together and it creates this DMT-based uh, psychoactive uh, substance. Yeah, and DMT uh, is a chemical that our brain already produces naturally and has receptors for, right? right? But, yeah. but our, our body also has something that does not uh, create the psychoactive effect. It yeah. kind of neutralizes that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Except when people are near death, etc., they might feel some of those things. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and and the the belief in those cultures is that this represents grandmother energy or the earth. Mm. It connects you to that energy. So when I had that experience, I went to Ecuador uh, when the, during those five months when I said I'm going to experience a variety of different modalities. I went to the Himalayas. Uh, on a 10-day journey in the uh, Ladakh region, which is on the border of India and Tibet, which is a deeply Buddhist region. That's where I turned 60, and I was with a group, and I wrote a book called Shakti Leadership about the masculine-feminine integration. And, you know, we we take these uh, tours, Shakti Leadership Spiritual Journeys, to various places around the world. So that was one of those. And then I also went to the uh, Ecuador rainforest with the Pachamama Alliance. Mm. In twist and and uh, in twist, yeah, twist and uh, the whole uh, uh, organization there. So we went on a journey for ten days deep into the heart of the rainforest, and one of those experiences that we had with the shaman was the ayahuasca. And uh, I had gone there to learn about healing for myself, for the for business, for and for the planet. And uh, I got many visions that night, and uh, and the most significant one. Uh, was where four words floated in my vision. And uh, the words kind of moved around and then they gelled into a sequence. And it says, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. <laughs> so this is the list. Mm-hmm. That is the acronym. That this is what the world of business has gotten very far away from. And this is what we all have gotten far away from. That this is what we need to get back to. We need to get back to love. We need to get back to innocence to simplicity and to truth, right? And if you think about each of those, you know, to what extent do we operate out of love versus fear, versus greed, versus, you know, any other driver, right? Unconditional love is a rare thing uh, in the world, but can we operate with that in business as a leader, as a parent, you know, 
most parents. I mean, in my culture, the fathers don't give unconditional love. It's very conditional. Yeah. You do what I say, I love you. Otherwise, you're nobody to me. Mm. I was mm. cut by my father for five years because I wanted to marry somebody. He didn't right? So he basically cut me off. No contact. Mm. So it's very conditional. So we need to get back to pure love, unconditional love. Innocence. You know, we are all born innocent. And soon we get corrupted. We get uh, co-opted, right? We we start to uh, use each other, take each other, you know, we um, uh, basically, you know, ends justify the means, you know, we do whatever it takes to win in the world. And that's soon we told it's all about winning. You know, it's not about how you play the game. It's about winning and losing. It's all about that, right? And we define winning as power and money. So, yeah, we lost our innocence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people do anything for... We see it in our political system right now, right? People yeah. do anything to stay in power. Right? Uh, the simplicity, we made everything so complex. We hide behind complexity. If you look at the financial crisis of 2008, it was really about people tricking each other with complexity. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody understood. Yeah. I didn't understand the buyer didn't understand them, right? And but then they keep getting up value. So they said, okay, let me, you know, I'll get out before it's too late. Uh and then truth. What is our commitment to the truth? You know, I have a PhD in marketing. Okay. <laughs> the connection to marketing and the truth. Hmm. It's very, very nebulous at best. Right, truth is really about a subjective, and you spin, and you know, in politics and everywhere else. But these are so fundamental, you know. Mm. And we have to return to these things. We have to, mm. and that's really, I think, what healing result comes from when we go back to operating with love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Mm. 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 It's a beautiful list, and. Uh, as we kind of come down into the last 15 minutes of our conversation or so here, I'm really curious and thank you for sharing and, and disclosing kind of your personal journey. And I'm excited to see how that comes to life in your book. Good luck completing that. Um, but I'm finding a part of me now is sort of feeling called to, to what you see becomes possible. If, if we collectively start to reconnect to those four things, like what, what are you seeing in the world's, or what's absent from the world now that could be present? Or what are you seeing kind of in a germination phase that if it was in full blossom, yeah. it would be really, really uh, powerful to express and connect to? Well, you know, I mean, this whole idea of innocence, I mean, the, the last part of my book, the epilogue is called A Return to Innocence. Hmm. Right? I think to me, if I had to look at sort of the meta idea here, Love, innocence, simplicity, and truth, all critical. But I think the root of it is innocence. Mm. You know? And it's kind of a, almost a biblical thing, right? Why, mm. why Adam and Eve vanished from Eden? Mm. Loss of innocence. I think our journey is back to innocence. Mm. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, why did somebody like a Greta, right, become such a figure in the world, right? The young Thunberg, mm. right? Greta Thunberg, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because... The innocence of a child sees the truth. Mm-hmm. Right? Children cannot tell a lie, right? A truly innocent child, right? Yeah. And they focus on what really matters, what's simple, right? So innocence, simplicity, love, and truth all go together. And uh, I'm just, I just heard of Ezra Klein say this on his podcast that children have not yet been taught to ignore what is obviously not right, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> and all of us learn at a young age to do that. Right. So when my children were young, you know, they would say, why is that person homeless? Like, why can't we help? You know, why, why, why? Right. You need to go back to those questions. Mm. Why do mm. we accept? Mm. We accept so much that is so clearly unacceptable. Mm. Why do we as businesses make it okay that, you know, heart attacks are 20% higher on Monday morning? Why are we killing the parents of, of the children? You know, of uh, of of people, families that are involved in our business, right? The children of our employees should be our stakeholders in our business, mm. right? Mm. Why that are harming their parents? Mm. Right? We have to look at all the things that we take as a cost of doing business. You know, is unacceptable. The human cost, right? Where eighty-eight percent of people feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them as a human being. Is that right? 88% is the figure? 88%, yeah, there's a survey that from a couple of years ago, right? Jeez. Uh, you know, why is it okay that 9, 10 million people die every year from pollution? Mostly created, you know, developed or done, you know, in the process of running our businesses. And, and a lot of that pollution today is preventable. Maybe it wasn't in the 1800s, but today there are ways to mitigate that, but we choose not to, right? So why do we accept things that are clearly unacceptable? You know, I'm reminded of Ray Anderson, the CEO of Interface Carpet, you know, who was running a very, very polluting industry that is based upon nylon carpets. Mm. Mm. So, you know, using fossil fuels as raw material and then using tons of energy to produce the product. And then at the end of their life, they get dumped into the ground, into landfill. Yeah. And, you know, he was admitted, that's just how you did business, right, in, in that industry. And then he wrote, he read one book. He was supposed to give a speech about sustainability. And he said, I don't know what this is about. He's asking, <laughs> tell me what I need to say. <laughs> they, they gave him a book by Paul Hawken called The Ecology of Commerce. Yeah. And he woke up, he read the book and he, he woke up, he couldn't sleep. And the next day he was a transformed human being. He said, my God, I'm a plunderer. I am stealing the future from my children and their children. Yeah. What I'm doing today, if there was any real justice in the world, what I'm doing would, you know, uh, would, would get me in jail. Mm. Mm. And he started his speech by saying, my fellow plunderers. He's talking to other CEOs, right? So again, I think we need that level of clarity. We wow. need that level of, uh, of accountability, Right. Uh, to say that which was acceptable somehow in the past. See, when you don't know, it's okay. But when you become aware, yeah. when you're conscious, then you cannot say that that which was acceptable is still acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, you're, and I'm struck by the kind of um, beautiful but challenging paradox of your invitation into innocence, which is it includes a real clear-eyed courage, a real clear-eyed willingness to look at all the ways in which we are not innocent, <laughs> all the all the ways in which we've we've hurt each other, and uh, and heal from that and change yes. to reclaim innocence. So it's like there, a mentor of mine often says that says, you know, the only way out is in. <laughs> yes. You know, the only way the only way 
out is through. We, there's, there's no going around this. We just, it's just going to continue to follow us in our wake. And so we have to turn and go back in to come back out the other side. And I hear that in your invitation to say like, we can't just play it in a sense. We can't oh. we actually have to look and really see what this means. And then there, there might be, we might discover the possibility for new creativity and joy and play. And yeah, which feels uh, scary to someone who, who hasn't experienced that yet, who hasn't, as you said, woken up. There's that, that, that idea of, of waking up to this that I yeah. hear you describing. I wonder if you could just like the story you told of the CEO there of, of, of interface carpeting is a great example, but, and it sounds like you've sort of been on your own, having your own awakenings, but there's this sort of like moment where suddenly we see in a way we haven't before. And it yeah. feels like that's what you're talking about here. Is that, that, right? that, is, that is what I'm talking about. And I think how do we get there? You know, there are a variety of modalities, um, certainly meditation, certainly working with spiritual teachers, reading, being exposed to the right kinds of ideas, mentors, coaching, being out in nature connecting to indigenous wisdom. Mm. And I believe these plant journeys as well. That's mm. an important piece of that. And there's more and more research coming out on that now. And, you know, this is this is something we have access to that could have profound implications uh, for humanity if we if we use it in the right way. Mm. These mm. around this exist in nature and they're there for a reason. Uh, mm. It basically gives you access to a level of consciousness you don't normally have access to. Yeah. All these insights that come to the surface and then you, you retain those insights. It's not like you forget them. They're crystal clear the next day and you remember them forever. Mm. Right. Mm. So those are, those are extremely important. And, and again, the idea of innocence, you know, it's like Stephen Covey had talked about that when we start out in life, we are dependent, right? By definition, human babies are born yes. to us. We can't do anything, yeah. <laughs> unlike some other species. So we are completely dependent, right, more than any other species. And then, of course, our journey and our striving and our mature, maturing is into independence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Individuation, our separation from the parents and so forth. And that's, that's part of our developmental journey. We're supposed to become individuated. Mm-hmm. But then that's not the completion. The completion is interdependence. Mm-hmm come back into voluntary and chosen connection and dependence on each other, right? But it's interdependence. Yeah. Mutually beneficial interdependence with the family and with others, right? Likewise with innocence. So we're born helpless and innocent, of course. We're born innocent. We have mm-hmm. no, you know, and that's just a clean slate that we are. Uh, and then we, we kind of, you know, learn the ways of the world and we become worldly and we become clever and we become strategic and we become, you know, Manipulate, whatever, right? We become the opposite of, of that. Cunning. <laughs> cunning, I guess, is a good way to summarize. Cunning, yes, yes, yeah. Um, but that's not the end of the journey. The third stage is to come back around, right? Mm. Different uh, innocence on the other side of wholeness, right? So you become a whole human being, fully empowered, right? With all of your capacities. Then you choose to be operating with innocence, Right? So it's a chosen innocence. It's innocence with a core of steel. It's a resilient innocence. Mm. It's, mm. it's not, as I said, it's a, so if you look at Mandela, you know, when he came out of 27 years, you know, in prison and many of those in solitary, uh, 
but he came out with such beauty and grace and and uh, you know you know he had evolved into this spiritual being while he was there right and he had this infectious laughter and smile and he became this joyful presence on the global stage and he had that innocence to gandhi had that innocence to him the dalai lama has that innocence to him desmond tutu has that innocence to him you know there aren't that many but there are people like that right tremendous strength other they are weak they're incredibly strong but they're also at their core innocent which means they're operating without guile they're operating with goodwill they're operating with a desire to uplift with no personal agenda mm-hmm. that's the innocent now what happens i think in society is we get stuck in the middle yeah we get in our especially the us we are stuck in independence everybody is uh, you know an island into themselves yeah we're such an individualistic society <clears throat> that we reject the idea of the collective yes oh wow, socialism that socialism everything is an easy label to throw on <laughs> yeah it's sort of the like the arrested development yes sort of like the maturity and it's just so striking how how uh, what's the word i'm looking for like the volume the the sort of like there's a certain kind of power that adolescent energy has that's undeniable yeah it's just a kind of like f you you know it's the f you dad energy right it's that just like mm-hmm. you know and that and that what i hear you describing is a version of that like we we are we have developed and we need an independence we need a sense of ourselves and if yeah. we think that that's we're grown ups just like if a if a 14 year old thinks they're an adult right. of course they feel like an adult because they look back over their own life and they're like look at me now but it's just they can't know the amazing journey still to come And so I sort of hear you standing as like an invitation to say where you are right now is essential. You had to get there because you can't get to where you need to go next, but you got to keep going. You can't just stop. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And what you've pointed to is, you know, I talked about the four energies, right? Yeah. Each of those has a positive manifestation, so elder mm-hmm. and it also can have the negative side of it. Mm. Right, which mm-hmm. is dogma and superstition. Mm-hmm. being stuck and ultra conservative mm. right that negative reflection of elder energy fearful mm. and restrictive uh of course the masculine we have the positive of strength courage focus resilience but the the uh you know the the uh, uh negative side of that the hyper masculine is the right the, the uh, domination extreme aggression extreme competition etc feminine likewise love compassion empathy inclusiveness but you can also have sentimentality and neediness and mm-hmm. Uh, and on all of that and then the child energy the healthy expression is joy and innocence and and uh, playfulness and laughter the unhealthy is the self indulgent short term thinking adolescent yeah <laughs> again you need to stay away from those uh, unfortunately if i look at where the us is right now historically because we only have masculine we became hyper masculine yeah so we are the most you know there was an expression years ago America is from Mars, Europe is from Venus. <laughs> we have the most hyper aggressive, you know, society in that way. Right? So we're stuck in the hyper masculine energy, mm-hmm. the complete absence of the feminine. Yeah. And then on the, on the elder energy, we had the uh, you know, the ultra religious uh, sort of uh, you know, organized religion, you know, that 
being very prominent part of this country yeah. with not the spiritual wisdom and the loving wisdom but really the you know the divisive yes you know, the institutionalized yeah. divisive controlling and on the yeah. child energy it's all adolescent energy yeah. right because we lost the innocence but we have that sort of you know 50 year old man acting like teenagers right <laughs> you have that energy of you know peter pan being america it doesn't mean you have, you don't ever have to actually grow up right we kind of mm-hmm. not to paint with too broad a brush but i'm saying the the overriding energy is too much of that but we have the opportunity right to develop those others and right. to elevate into the higher forms of them and of right. course being in the feminine which has been so lacking yeah yeah sorely lacking i sense So as you look uh Raj this has been a, been really really beautiful and and I wonder as you as you tune into these four energies what was the phrase you used earlier it was like the wise fool of tough love or something yes. like that so that's my phrase uh my co-author Nilima Bhatt on Shakti leadership mm she came up with that to reflect the you know the fourfold self as she called it Yeah. We didn't use it in that book though and so I've talked to her about maybe that's a book that she and I want to write someday, you know. I love it. I love that encapsulation. You know, if I think about the greatest leaders I've I've ever known, they are the wise fools of tough love. Yeah. You know, they're incredibly wise, they're incredibly joyful, they're incredibly strong and they're incredibly loving. Yeah. 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 Southwest Airlines. Describes <laughs> yeah. them. Right? It describes um, you know, Mandela, it describes Gandhi, it describes Martin Luther King. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm just sort of wondering there's some kind of question in me. I don't quite have the words for it yet, but it's something like sort of where and how are you seeing seeds being planted for this uh and in the soil that we're we're all in? Like do you have a sense of where might people look right now if i if someone hears this and they say god that sounds so good and then i'm i'm one of the 88% who's in this company that like treats me like junk and and pays me just just enough to get by and you know doesn't care that i'm working from home in a pandemic with two kids or whatever the sort of specifics are you know where what wells would you invite someone like that to go drink from what places where they should they start to look Well I would say you know these various movements that are out there now conscious capitalism just capital b team b corp cecp inclusive capitalism mm. etc i mean they all have companies that are part of that these that are highlighted right if you look at the best places to work if you look at the most ethical companies list if you look at women led uh, enterprises mm mm all of companies started by you know millennials and uh, and younger people are more purpose driven they're more uh inclusive cultures you know etc they're more balanced in terms of diversity so i think you know it's emerging from the bottom up in in many ways right the newer companies that are started are emerging more with this consciousness but i would say we're still in the early days mm-hmm. which is why our movements exist you know we want to accelerate that and we want to create the conditions in which those kinds of businesses will will thrive yeah so we're working on the seed and the soil yeah we're going to create these kinds of seeds and we want to create the conditions in which those seeds will then uh germinate into something beautiful yeah well thank you for that uh, i'll try and that short list you just landed right at the end uh, i want to make sure folks 
Because I suspect some some people listen, perhaps a lot of people will go, wait a minute, like that it's almost like you open a door into a whole understanding of what's possible professionally that seemed impossible until you realize that there are many actors on this stage of of kind of a, a more there, there are hundreds, actually. Yeah. And a good place to go is Imperative 21. Out of 21 is a coalition now of eight such entities, including us, Conscious Capitalism, uh, but also affiliated with another 150, 200 of them. Wow. It's coming up saying, this is, these are the imperatives for the 21st century. Mm. And what are the things that we need to reinvent and reset? Mm. It's a good place where a lot of these ideas are being now mm. consolidated, mm. build a more mm. cohesive movement out of it. Mm. Well, Raj, um, Thank you. This has been a real gift. I appreciate how you've shared some of your journey and how you said yes to the, to the push to, from your, from your, uh, the women in your life who said, you know, you've, you've got it. Healing, you're right, Raj, healing is sacred, including yours. And I really now feel you standing as an invitation for, for anyone who meets you or hears you to say, also including yours and including yours and including yours. So thank you for really being a stand for this, this the last, world. Uh, yeah, the last metaphor I'll leave you with also came to me on that journey where I had the list. Before that, I saw a vision of long line, snaking line of people, thousands standing under the hot sun. And at the end of that line is a tiny little woman, right? And the people are going up to that woman, they're getting a hug, long, intense hug, and then they're walking away in tears, right? Now, this woman is a real woman. She's known as Amma, which means mother. She's the hugging saint. From yes. She travels all over the world, and all she does is, is hugs people. And people experience unconditional love mm. in those, you know, few seconds or a minute that they're with her. And they're so starved for that, right? And the message that I got when I was shown that vision was that all these people standing in line could be hugging each other. <laughs> don't have to wait to get a hug from her that we all have mm. we need within ourselves for each mm. other. Mm. The expression, we're all here to walk each other home, mm. right? If we don't do that, if we don't bring that energy to it, right? Instead, we're using each other and abusing each other and staying apart from each other. You know, that's what us, all this suffering is caused by us on ourselves for lack of awareness and awakening and on each other. Yeah. So the suffering is predominantly that, right? Mm. Self-imposed or it's imposed by us on each other. Therefore, we are the cure. We are the healers. We are the sufferers and we are the healers at the same time, all of us. Yeah. (laughs) That's the perfect place to end. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your vision, that vision in particular, but your, your broader vision for love and innocence and simplicity and truth and Really glad that uh, that you're out there in the world, Raj. Appreciate you deeply. Thank you, Andy, and I appreciate what the work you're doing with uh, with your podcast and other things as well. Yeah, Great. thanks so much. All right, everyone, and and Raj, if folks want to find you, if like someone's hearing this in the moment and they want to go learn more, what's the best place to to point? Uh, my name rajasodia.com is my website. And you can follow me on Twitter at rajasodiacc, which is conscious capitalism. And okay. I'm not hard to find. There's no place to hide, you know. <laughs> amazing well i hope i hope folks do follow you and when your new book is in the world i hope that uh i hope that they read it because all of the previous the ones i've read at least conscious capitalism and the healing organization are just really remarkable so thank you 
Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.